Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again, and here I am once more to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast is going to be to examine the climax, falling action, and resolution of the endings of each of his novels and break it down by character, themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I will also weigh in on whether or not I like the ending. So today what we are going to be discussing is the conclusion to uh, the last Castle Rock story, Needful Things. And I was excited to get back into Needful Things uh, because, as I've said over the last couple episodes, we have hit a point in King's publishing career in which he is dipping into to very big ideas and um, more overt displays of magic and supernaturalism. Uh, he still keeps his his worlds grounded in a recognizable reality through the character interactions and the the setting, uh, in this case of Castle Rock. But we're seeing the scope of the stories start to expand and have it filled with, like I said, more uh, supernaturalism and uh, characters who are, in this case of Leland Gaunt, incredibly outwardly villainous um, and characters using literal magic. And this, for some people, is a turnoff uh, who want more quote-unquote grounded stories from King. Uh, And that's understandable. So I, I, I went into this wondering what uh, what Castle Rock was was going to look like once I just analyzed the, the, the ending itself. Before I get any further, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary so that we have a basis to, to talk about the ending. A new shop named Needful Things opens in the town of Castle Rock, Maine, sparking the curiosity of its citizens. The proprietor, Leland Gaunt, is a charming elderly gentleman who always seems to have an item in stock that is perfectly suited to any customer who comes through his door. The prices are surprisingly low, considering the merchandise, such as a rare Sandy Calfax baseball card, carnival glass lampshade, a fragment of wood to believe from Noah's Ark, but he expects each customer to also play a little prank on someone else in town. Gaunt knows about the long-standing private grudges, arguments, and feuds between the various townspeople, and the pranks are his means of forcing them to escalate until the whole town is eventually caught up in madness and violence. Sheriff Alan Pangborn becomes wary of Gaunt as soon as the shop opens. However, Alan's lover, Polly Chalmers, dismisses his suspicions and buys an ancient charm that relieves his the, the arthritis pain in her hands. Tensions rapidly grow after Nettie Cobb, Polly's housekeeper, and her enemy, Wilma Jerzyk, kill each other in a confrontation sparked by pranks played on them by local boy Brian Rusk and alcoholic Hugh Priest. Many other rivalries begin to fester, spurred by the personal motives and secrets of the people involved. Gaunt eventually hires petty criminal John Ace Merrill as his assistant, providing him with high-quality cocaine and hinting at buried treasure that could relieve the debt he owes to a pair of drug dealers. Ace's first assignment is to retrieve crates of pistols, ammunition, and blasting caps from a garage in Boston. Gaunt soon begins to sell the pistols to his customers so they can protect their property. 
For centuries, Gaunt has tricked unsuspecting people into buying worthless junk that appears to be whatever they treasure most. They become so paranoid about keeping their items safe that they eagerly buy up weapons that he inevitably offers to trade away their souls. Ace begins to suspect the supernatural background of his new employer, but Gaunt keeps him in line through intimidation and promises of revenge against Alan and the town. Soon, several cases of violence happen simultaneously. Jim Coach Lester Pratt attacks Deputy John LaPointe and is killed in self-defense. Priest and bar owner Harry Beaufort kill each other in a shootout. Brian commits suicide over his guilt for his role in Wilma and Nettie's death. And town selectman Danforth Buster Keaton attacks Deputy Norris Ridgwick there before escaping to his home and killing his wife Myrtle with a hammer. With the violence in Castle Rock rapidly escalating, Ace and Buster plant dynamite all over town. Using the caps Ace brought back, Alan sets out to kill Ace, wrongly believing him to be responsible for a car accident that killed his wife and son. Polly realizes the evil of the charm she brought and destroys it. Norris attempts suicide, realizing this is a prank on priest uh, led to the fatal shootout, but decides against it and goes to the police station to help. As the bomb explodes, Buster is wounded by Norris and is pulled out of his misery by Ace. Put out of his misery by Ace. Uh, taking Polly hostage, Ace demands that Alan hand over a hoard of cash he allegedly stole from one of the sites Ace dug up. Norris kills Ace, leaving Alan to face off against Gaunt. Using sleight of hand and magic novelties that suddenly come to life, Alan forces Gaunt back and grabs his valise, uh, which contains the souls of his customers. Gaunt flees the scene, his car turning to a horse-drawn wagon, and the survivors are left to ponder an uncertain future. The novel ends as it begins, with a first-person narrative indicating that a new and mysterious shop called Answered Prayers is about to open in a small Iowa town, an ominous implication that Gaunt is ready to begin his business cycle all over again. You know what I'm going to do right now uh, that, that I haven't done yet in this podcast? I th- This week for Needful Things, you know what I, I wound up doing? I, I actually listened to my review that I had given back in the day of, of Needful Things. From a personal standpoint, it was actually uh, a really cool form of time travel doing that. I, I could hear certain noises in the background of my old house. I could hear my... Um, my my refrigerator that I had behind my bar in my basement, um, you know, kick in and just really brought me back. Uh, so that was pretty cool. But what I've wound up doing, I've I've cut out um, a section of that podcast that I did. I'm going to put it here next, where um, you know, long ago version of me talking about needful things uh, talks about the ending. And I'm taking that out and I'm putting in here for, for this podcast um, just to, to go into a little bit more detail. So uh, let, let's talk about the ending. If you don't like it, I guess I get it. But at the end of the day, how are you going to defeat Gaunt? Bullets? I just don't see that working. Um, magic items prophesized in some ancient scroll? I mean, that wasn't built into the story. You know, the one thing that had been built into the story was magic. For two novels now, The Dark Half and now this, we've identified Alan Pangborn with magic. Sleight of hand, illusions, parlor tricks, shadow puppetry. It's been built into the character from day one. So really, was it a surprise when Pangborn uses this magic to defeat the villain, a character also defined by his own brand of magic? Some people criticize the ending. Personally, I love it. I mean, the man uses shadow puppets to defeat the villain. I'm sorry. Look, 
It's so crazy, I love it. Plus, uh, King has about 10 pages left for the tale about his most famous town. So he even works in that sort of trip down memory lane callback that television series finales tend to incorporate into their story to remind the viewers of all of the memories he or she might have had on that show. So on page 678, King writes, Alan felt his belly try to fold in on itself, but he didn't move. Instead, prompted by some instinct he made no effort to understand, he put his hands together in front of the station wagon's left headlight. He crossed them, made a bird shape, and began to bend his wrists rapidly back and forth. The sparrows are flying again, Mr. Gaunt, he thought. A large projected shadow bird, more hawk than sparrow, and unsettlingly realistic for an insubstantial shade, suddenly flapped across the false front of needful things. Gaunt saw it from the corner of his eye, whirled towards it, gasped, and retreated again. Get out of town, my friend, Alan said. He rearranged his hands and now a large shadow dog, perhaps a St. Bernard, slouched across the front of you so-and-so in the spotlight thrown by the station wagon's headlights. And somewhere near, perhaps coincidentally, perhaps not, a dog began to bark. A large one by that sound. You know, that's just the warm-up. When Gaunt goes for his bag, King unleashes Pangborn's potential. On page 679, um, King writes, Abracadet, look, listen, this is the thing. I love it. I love this. And just as I started to read it, I realized that some people out there probably were rolling their eyes, but I love this, that this is the smile, you son of a bitch moment. Abracadabra, you lying F, he cried, and what suddenly bloomed in his hand was not a bouquet of flowers, but a blazing bouquet of light that lit Upper Main Street with a fabulous shifting radiance. Yet he realized the colors rising from his fist in an incredible fountain were one color, as all the colors translated by a glass prism or rainbow in the air are all one color. He felt a jolt of power run up his arm, and for a moment he was filled with a great an incoherent ecstasy. The white, the coming of the white. Gaunt howled with pain and rage and fear, but did not back away. Perhaps it was as Alan had suggested. It had been so long since he had lost the game that he had forgotten how. He had tried to dive in below the bouquet of light shimmering over Alan's closed hand, and just for a moment, his fingers actually touched the handles of the valets between Alan's feet. Suddenly, a foot clad in a bedroom slipper appeared, Polly's foot. She stamped down on Gaunt's hand. Leave it alone, she stamped. Um, and he continues to, to write. I'm telling you for the last time to get out, he said in a voice he did not recognize as his own. It was too strong, too sure, too full of power. He understood he probably could not put an end to the thing which crouched before him with one cringing hand raised to shield its face from the shifting spectrum of light, but he could make it be gone. Tonight that power was his if he dared to use it, if he dared to stand and be true. Alan uses this power that courses through him to release the souls of the townsfolk. It is such a triumphant scene that reminds me of a certain scene with Father Callahan in the Dark Tower. He beats back Gaunt, who transforms into his true form, an elf-like creature who rides away into the night sky while our heroes roll out of Castle Rock 
which we then place in our rearview mirror forever. But there's an epilogue with our narrator again, the one who opened the novel, or one just like him, I suppose. There's a narrator like this in every town, I guess, and the novel ends as it began, with a gossipy rundown of the townspeople and the arrival of a new store, one that we find all too familiar. So before I get in my final thoughts, um, I just want to talk about the tone of this book. You know, I just need to stress the wonderful, wonderful tone of this book. You know, I didn't catch it during my first read. I was too young to do so. Um, but now it's clear that King has crafted a tale that's just as funny as it is dark. You know, Salem's Lot was a serious examination on the life and death of a small town. But here, King lampoons the small town trivialities with a grand flourish. It's as if we should see the characters not through the eyes of any of the townsfolk, but through the eyes of Leland Gaunt, who treats the destruction of each soul as entertainment. And who can blame him? It's entertaining! And the amount of time they spend on their petty little insecurities and anxieties, you kind of want to see their downfalls. I mean, just look at what he writes on page 37. You know, it's a condemnation of the citizens of a small New England town, which he refers to as Hicks. When a new shop opens in a small New England town, the residents, Hicks though they may be in many other things, display a cosmopolitan attitude which their city cousins can rarely match. In New York or Los Angeles, a new gallery may attract a little knot of might-be patrons and simple lookers-on before the doors are opened for the first time. A new club may even garner a line, and police barricades with paparazzi armed with gadget bads and telephoto lenses standing expectantly beyond them. There is an excited hum of conversation as among theater-goers on Broadway before the opening of a new play which, smash hit or drop-dead flop, is sure to cause comment. When a new shop opens in a small New England town, there is rarely a crowd before the doors open and never a line. When the shades are drawn up, the doors unlocked, and the new concern declared open for business, customers come and go in a trickle, which would undoubtedly strike an outsider as pathetic, and probably as an ill omen for the shopkeeper's future prosperity. What seems like a lack of interest often masks keen anticipation and even keener observation. And he just goes on to just write these ridiculous social etiquettes that one must follow when a new shop opens in town. I mean, it is absurd how many rules need to be followed and shows just how foolish the characters look by placing so much importance on an unimportant event. All right, back to the present. I, I could have included... The, the I, I could have included a lot more. So I would recommend, actually, if you haven't done so or haven't done so in a while, go, go back and listen to my two-part review of, of Needful Things. For the, all my thoughts on the ending, I, I go into a lot of detail in all of the events occurring as the town um, explodes and implodes upon itself um, in a way that I, I don't remember doing that first time around. And I thought it was... Uh, um, you know, a good synopsis of everything that occurs. So let, let's, let's establish our criteria for a good ending, um, keeping in mind everything that I, I had just included and discussed that first time around. So the criteria for a good ending, does it provide an appropriate conclusion for its characters that are consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes from the book? Um, so let's look at, at Gaunt first. 
um, you know, he is a character that is outside the, the, the traditional normal hustle and bustle of, of the town. And he knows exactly how to play everyone. He's a commenter on small town life and is a mustache twirling villain. And to, to have this character who puffed himself up throughout the entirety of the novel be a squealing, mewling, begging, pathetic wretch at the end, um, just done away with, with someone that finally stands up to him. I think that it's, it's very much in line with the character as he was established. He, he's not some strong villainous creature. He is a manipulator. He is a parasite on this town. And so to have that parasite be confronted and forced out and pulled out of the the host body by Alan uh, Pangborn, I think that's completely appropriate for, um, for, for that character. Um, and who else? Polly. Um, you know, throughout the entirety of the novel, Polly had been uh, struggling with uh, her past, with uh, her, her child, with her arthritis. And, you know, she is given the probably the, the most traditional Stephen King horror moment with the spider in, in the bathtub in the house and her coming to her senses. Um, she is put in a damsel in distress role that isn't ideal however i don't think it's much of a detraction because in the end you know she she chooses the present and she chooses alan and um she she gets over the guilt and the pain of her past in a way that is is very cathartic um so though she winds up getting the the gun to her head at the end um that moment actually is subverted um through through norris um, saving the day rather than um, Alan. So the whole scene itself um, is a subversion. Um, and let's talk about uh, Alan. Um, as stated in the, the, the part of the original review that I just included, this is a character who comes in at the end and uses magic, not his guns, not, his, not law. Um, he uses a different kind of law. He uses a, a magical law. He uses a the, the law of the white, which is given by name in this book. And this is a force that King has has been um, expanding throughout his bibliography for, for years. And at this time, he's really starting to solidify it. So he, he does, he is a lawman in the sense that the gunslinger is a lawman. Um, and uh, at the times, Roland the Gunslinger uses, you know, uh, the, the powers of his ka, of of Ka and his Ka Tet, not just his guns. And similarly, Alan, um, he is able to brandish literal magic um, from a from a higher law to 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 vanquish the criminal that has come to town. So if you look at it that way, it's consistent. Also, as stated, magic had been seated within this character from the get-go, and this is a character that has rubbed up against supernaturalism and magic before in the pages of the Dark Half. So to see him utilize his magical flourishes to its fullest degree is within what the character has been had been established. So I think that it is an appropriate conclusion for this character as well. And 
the confrontation itself between Gaunt and Allen is something that had been teased throughout the book, and King had done a great job at having Gaunt hide from Allen and circumstances having Allen not be able to get to the the, the shop itself. Uh, so through the um, keeping them apart from each other, it has shown that Allen had sort of suspected something around this shop and Gaunt. And then it also had shown that Gaunt is a coward. So their ultimate confrontation with one another is in line with what he had established both of them being. Does it does it uh, successfully wrap up the plot, specifically to the events built upon one another? Yes, absolutely. Um, from the second that Gaunt comes to town, he had been building, he had been uh, having, he'd been pitting the characters against each other, and this is the explosive conclusion to that, where the town um, is is literally blown apart um, due to his machinations. This is a a big ending um, in terms of plot, and I think that's incredibly successful. Does the conclusion serve the theme, symbolism, and motifs? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, materialism and the corruption of our values due to um, commercialism and, and, and um, the, the worst aspects of capitalism and, and the way in which we, we just hoard items, um, it, it shows what happens to this town. Um, and, and, and the fact that they're just useless pieces of junk is um, fully on display through the reveal that the the shop owner is a charlatan. He's a huckster. He's a used car salesman. For King, one thing that that King really likes to do is to play with the concept of the man behind the curtain. So, spoiler alert for it. Spoiler alert for all of the Dark Tower. Let's start with it. I, this is a character that that had. It, specifically, uh, is a character that had been um, presented as being this all-powerful symbol of, of evil, right? But in the end, it, it the, the creature wound up becoming what many of King's uh, characters wind up becoming, his, his villains. They, they, they're weak, they're pathetic, they beg for their lives. I, I think most similarly to this is the... Um, the the finale for the Randall Flag, um, Walter Paddock character, um, who meets his uh, his demise in the pages of the Dark Tower, and many of us, myself included, at the time, I was so disappointed because he was not given some grand send off. But it was an ending that I now really rally behind and defend. It is a perfect conclusion to this character, who is so boastful, um, and just he doesn't deserve it. And it's 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 to, to to have your character like Gaunt, who loomed so large, be taken out, um, and, and to have him just crying and whining and, and and trying to get his bag back and and trying to make deals at the very end and and not he doesn't have a, a big boastful monologue. He's not cackling with glee and and holding it over you know his heroes' heads. You know he he, he doesn't have that kind of power. And and I think that. Showing him to be the man behind the curtain is an appropriate conclusion for the themes that not ev everything isn't exactly what they seem. So yes, I would say that um, the conclusion does serve the, the theme, the symbolism, and the motifs. What is the most famous scene in the novel? Does it appear in the conclusion of the story? Again, I just want to note that um, 
if the answer is that the, the most famous scene does not appear in the conclusion of the story, it doesn't mean that um, it, it's a knock against the book. Um, I would say that the most uh, famous scene in the novel is the uh, Nettie Wilma bloodbath brawl, probably. Um, and, and does not uh, appear in the conclusion, but, you know, it is what it is. Are there other factors that we need to consider? Um, yeah, the tone, um, which I discussed in the um, in the, the snippet of the podcast from uh, last time, or from the, the, the full review of Needful Things. The, the tone is not a straight horror. It is a um, scathing parody um, and commentary satire on small-town life that I think needs to be considered. Um, when when discussing this book, especially the ending. Um, okay. And, of course, the fantastical nature of the ending. Um, fantastical natures, fantastical endings um, that come out of the blue probably are not so good. Fantastical endings that come from uh, fantastical buildups are consistent. Um, and I think that this is a consistent ending to what King had established. So first question is, do I like the ending? The answer is yes. The next question is this. Is it an objectively good ending using the criteria that we had discussed? Yes. I would say that it is. Light, like, light show magic displays and shadow puppetry. Um, nevertheless, I think that because of this and because of what I, what I had discussed here, I think that it actually is a good ending for this book. Um, which brings it to uh, me liking 20 out of 20 endings um, and 18 out of 20 endings so far are good. I want your thoughts. I want you to write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com to tell me if I'm wrong, telling me if I missed the mark, telling me what you think about the endings um, of the book so far, especially Needful Things. All right, everyone, that's all that I got this week. May you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cast.